3: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world, and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
1: Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line today, we have myself, Jacob, um, as your presenter today, and then we have Chloe and Zane.
0: Hello.
4: Hello, listeners.
1: Yeah. So um just before we start uh, a bit of a discussion about some headline news, um, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wondry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present and that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Now, so it's, um, it's the, the, um, 11th of September, um, today, or well, it's the 10th of September because of, um, we're rec- do it, recording it the day before. Um, and I kind of wanted to have, start off a bit of a discussion, um, just a bit of analysis on, I guess, the current kind of state of COVID-19 restrictions in Victoria. Because I guess we've, we've seen a sort of number of, um, interesting kind of trends, I think. Um, and that is over on Sunday. Um, Daniel Andrews, the Daniel Andrews government, to its credit, has essentially announced a quite, I think, a quite a good sort of exit plan in terms of kind of COVID-19. It's clearly clear that they're not rushing um, to reopen things too soon, despite uh, the pressure of Um, The federal government, uh, despite the pressure from business councils, uh, et cetera, because there was a number of business councils that were um, kind of speaking um, out in, you know, speaking, basically making the argument that we need to ease up restrictions kind of sooner. And then there's also the kind of other factor, um, because I guess over last weekend, we saw this, um, these anti kind of lockdown protests um, kind of happening, which is sort of being fueled by... Some very far right kind of elements, um, basically conspiracy theory, sort of nothingness and uh, and so on and so I think it is quite impressive um, that I think that Daniel Andrews is in some sense basically my analysis of it is despite the fact that the government states that they are going for a suppression strategy, the fact that the targets um that they've outlined for um for the easing of restrictions are pretty much in line of elimination, i.e. eliminating COVID-19 from the community completely, I think is quite good. So yeah, that's now that said, obviously nothing is perfect. Um and I think there's probably lots of criticisms we can possibly make about the Daniel Andrews government from the left. And we wouldn't necessarily want to uncritically back him, but I think on this instance, i think I thought the announcements on sunday was quite welcoming. There was only one particular issue that I sort of had uh, which has been um rectified um recently, which is the whole issue of the council elections um so basically previously as of last week it was basic um the council elections are happening on october the twenty second and essentially the current level of restrictions of Stage 4 basically restricted any type of campaign activity. Now, there has been an amendment to that recently, and candidates and campaigners are allowed to letterbox when previously they weren't allowed. So I think that is was probably my biggest criticism, because I think it is completely undemocratic uh, to not allow any form of campaigning during election, even if it is a pandemic. But the fact is the state government decided that they'll get to go ahead with the election in October. The state government could have made a decision to delay the elections if they thought that the pandemic was going to be a big deal. But I think, yeah, in the interest, of, I think, of democracy, I think it's good that kind of change has been made. And I guess the last kind of point I kind of want to make and maybe other presidents want to comment is I think it's, um, I think the, the response of the Morrison government and the Liberals, I think, has been uh, in some sense completely kind of hypocritical. Um, the 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 government is accusing the Victorian government, uh, I guess, of authoritarianism. Uh, in fact, there was this tweet I saw by Alan Tudge where he shared this article about from the Australian that compared this current lockdown to um, Soviet Union repression in Poland, which I just thought was completely ridiculous but this is also coming from the same um minister and this is what the tweet pointed out that voted to keep children locked in offshore detention so you know that is actually classic authoritarianism from um that is actually an example of authoritarianism of actually denying human rights and that yet these hypoc- um, these hypocrites in the liberal party are basically arguing that you know that this sort of necessary kind of lockdown in the midst of a health uh, of a pandemic. And, and when there's a high level of community transmission, I think is, yeah, I just think it's actually, um, yeah, it's quite ridiculous.
0: Yeah. I, I think uh, the lockdown is hurting a lot of people who can't go to work at the moment and who aren't necessarily getting job keeper or job seeker. I'm in the privileged position of being self-employed. I'm, I'm collecting, um, JobKeeper and I'm still getting a little bit of work. Um, so I'm not hurting that much financially from this, but a lot of people are. Uh, but I, I would agree that I think the Andrews government has prioritized preserving human life. And yeah, as you say, there's, there's aspects of what Andrews has done that can be criticized. Um, but in general, the focus has been on prioritizing preserving human life over, um, getting the economy back to normal. And I think the, the reasoning behind keeping the lockdown measures in place, which is we need to see this through so don't get us, so we don't get a third wave is uh, generally uh, sound logic. Like I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't specialize in this field. But uh, I think yesterday we we're recording Thursday. Yesterday Wednesday was 71 uh, new cases. Like if we just went back to letting people go to cafes and stuff. Like if we if the lockdown was really released now. I from from what I have read and what I do know, I think there would be a Quite a good chance of a third wave, and then there'd be another massive lockdown needed for that. So I think the the logic behind extending it is is sound. And yeah, it's about preserving human life and stopping that third wave. But yeah, it's, a lot of people are really hurting right now, so it's definitely a bit of pill to swallow.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty. I was actually happy about the announcement from the Andrews government. He's Yeah, like, like, uh, Jacob and Zane both said, we, yeah, we can criticize Andrews for, for, um, how he's handled the pandemic so far. But yeah, those, the further lockdowns are necessary to preserve human life. Um, you know, and the Morrison government and right wingers, they, they love to talk about, I mean, they're so hypocritical. They've said things like, you know, we need to find, we need to like strike a balance, you know, when it comes to people's mental health and, you know, they're spreading lies about people committing suicide because of lockdown. And it's just, uh, it's hard to hear those types of comments spreading through the media because if anything, um, I think, yeah, mental health is an issue during lockdown, but uh, suicides have actually Actually decreased, you know, just because of the community spirit, you know, people, um, coming together and helping each other. But, uh, it's, it's not, you can't really use that argument to, um, open up borders, um, just to keep making profits for business. Um, people, if we do open borders and we do, um, and if we don't take the necessary restrictions, um, and we don't, um, yeah, adopt that elimination, strategy more lives will be lost and that's that won't be good for mental health either if people just uh you know start dying um in their hundreds again so um yeah just arguments like that are absolutely not welcome and you know they're, they're just using all these other like weird um arguments like refugees uh refugee families um also being torn apart as if as if they care about um uh, People from refugee backgrounds—they're they're the very same uh, people that fight for anti-immigration policies—and um, yeah, I, it just really angers me when I I see uh, people that they can't have it both ways, basically.
1: And um, I guess I, other adding a comment to that, um, Chloe, I guess I mean I find it a bit, I do find it very cynical this sort of thing about you know mental health actually because since when have the liberal government Ever really cared about mental health. I mean, to the credit of the Andrews government, they have, in um, in fact, increased funding in certain areas and, in fact, implemented particular services uh, during this time of COVID-19, um, during the um, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I think it is quite cynical. And actually, speaking of cynicism, actually, I, I kind of want to go segue a bit into, I guess, another news story that is um, slightly related, um, which is this, funny story about um it came up this morning in well um yesterday morning in the age um on about the australian post um chief executive christine holgate who you know makes millions billions of dollars in money i mean she's the ceo of um of australian post and of course australian post has been in the midst of uh giving bonuses to their um, to their shareholders while cutting staff and then even asking uh, Australian post workers to do volunteer shifts uh, during in this time of pandemic rather than actually giving them hazard pay, um, giving them extra pay. Now apparently this story is so random, but now I'm building up to it. Apparently she threatened to call the police unless this, um, this is during, just a bit about Gratgan, during the public ho- um, lockdown of public housing estates in Flemington, she had apparently threatened to call the police unless the city of Melbourne delivered more than a hundred of Pauline Hanson's One Nation branded stubby holders to every apartment in a lockdown suburban public housing tower in July. Mm. And it's a bit weird because, um, apparently, um, uh, you know, apparently Senator Hanson at the time had labelled residents of the Melbourne Towers drug addicts and alcoholics. So I'm not sure what, what use they would find, um, for calling Hanson One Nation, um, stubby holders because essentially the person on the stubby holder t- basically made it clear that she hates the people in the, in the public housing towers. So yeah, there's all sorts of, I guess,
0: Well, the stubby holders were sent by Pauline Hanson's office to the public housing towers, uh, apparently with a handwritten note in each parcel saying, no hard feelings. So it's like, oh, yeah, we just did this racist attack on you and called you drug drug addicts and alcoholics, but here, have a pat on the head and a stubby cooler to show that we didn't really mean it or, you know... What, what, what is that? That is like the most passive-aggressive, disgusting, evil shit from Pauline Hanson and whoever—if it wasn't her, whoever in her office—had this evil idea of like, you know, how rub salt in the wound. We'll send some stubby coolers to him. We'll just jam a bit of Pauline Hanson One Nation propaganda in their face, having just called them drug addicts and alcoholics to to like justify the lockdown. And some people from Melbourne Council who are distributing stuff to the towers during lockdown were like, what are all these parcels? Opened one? Oh, it's Pauline Hanson propaganda. Hmm, probably not that appropriate to be giving that to residents right now. This thing is already quite a tinderbox. Uh, and then that is when the CEO of Australia Post stepped in and said, oh, no, you will be delivering them. Thank you very much. And put the, you know, Push the hard line it's not a hundred percent clear in the article whether they actually got delivered it or not uh in the end but certainly that's what uh that's what the auspost ceo was going into bat for yeah
1: it's um yeah it's put it i guess in a bit of perspective i think it's it just shows I think the I think the insanity I think of capitalism in a way. Uh because on one hand you have unions, community groups who are volunteering their time to deliver food packages, etc., uh to um to the public housing towers, and meanwhile a politician with Lots of money, lots of resources, used her resources to essentially send a passive aggressive message attached to a stubby holder with her face on it. So I think that there's, a, it says, I think, a lot about the capitalist system. And then the fact that a CEO of the Australian Post sought to intervene in such a matter, um, Especially since there were actually also cases where volunteers, out of the goodness of their heart, weren't even be weren't even allowed to um, deliver goods um, um, to the public housing towers. So I think, you know, I, I thought one of the, the the I think this just shows I think the amazing uh psych- um yeah, just I think just shows the, the amazing inadequacy of, of the capitalist system in terms of who it gives power to and who it disempowers. Yeah,
4: that's capitalism at that it's finest in its finest hour and then i loved i loved the i mean i don't love it at all i mean she calls the police saying i didn't know that she actually you know it's just like another example of how they can use the police to support their their cause uh police were actually um for those who didn't follow the story um police were surrounding those public uh towers and preventing the people who were trying to volunteer to the volunteers from actually getting food to those residents that couldn't leave their, their homes to get food. Um, yeah, that that's a, that's pretty sick. Uh, what happened with Australia post and with the CEO of Australia post, uh, completely unacceptable, uh, very racist.
1: (laughs) Anyway, well, um, maybe I might tie this up and we might, um, do, um, we might talk about a few other more news stories, um, but yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and I might just play, I guess, a quick announcement.
2: There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid.
4: Music
2: Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Oh, it makes
4: me happy. Yes, this is our
2: vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier
0: Great Voices
2: Music Matters Ooh, the, hip sister hop show. the Heavy, Heavy Session
1: The Planetakes Radio
3: Show
2: Satellite Skies Shindig
3: Sweet Dreams
2: Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au <laughs> Let our music make you happy.
1: Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio. I don't know what time it is, um, but yeah, um, I think Chloe had a, has written an article recently for Green Left and, um, yeah, she was get it. we're going to have a bit of a discussion about it. So maybe, um, Chloe, if you wanted to kind of start off.
4: Yeah. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, yeah. So there is an article in Green Left. Um, it's titled Banksy Refugee Rescue Boat saves, saves lives and spreads hope. Um, and I, I maybe just give a bit of a background that, that there is a big increase in refugees right now lots of um migrant workers trying to escape poverty uh, civil war and persecution and the economic crisis is being is exacerbated by covid-19 um and the situation in countries like libya and uh tunisia is is, is particularly scary and more and more people are currently uh, crossing the Mediterranean Sea from Africa and the Middle East to try and escape Europe and you know, trying to enter the, the ports of countries like Malta and Italy. And so many people they are losing their lives. They are dying at sea. They are drowning. Uh, they're starving. And it just goes to show how desperate their situation was to begin with for them to actually attempt to to cross one of the deadliest migration routes in the world. Um, but then, then there's this, um, story, um, uh, that Banksy, um, and many people would have heard of him and many listeners would, would know who Banksy is. But for those who don't, he's a, a British graffiti artist and he's anonymous. No one really knows who he actually is, but he has funded a rescue vessel. Um, and it's called the MV Louise Michel, and it's, It's the vessels, it's named after a 19th century French anarchist. Um, and it's actually, I mean, I would encourage people to just read about this because it's a, it's a feminist project. So basically Banksy, he, he contacted Pierre Klemp, who is a sea captain. Uh, she, she also was facing 20 years in imprisonment for saving refugees. And, um, yeah, she's just considered like a, a, a huge inspiration. Uh, but he contacted her and said something like, you know, you're a badass or something and I want to help. And he basically funded a, a boat. He he converted this naval uh, vessel into a rescue boat. And, you know, I wouldn't say hide, but he yeah, he told uh, he got a crew together, a crew of 10 uh, women. And they're all from different backgrounds. They're all uh, anti-fascist, anti-racist activists. Um, they're experienced um, search and res- rescue because they've um, yeah they've been doing this for quite a while and yeah it's just basically like a pink boat with Banksy's artwork on it and uh, yeah they they set sail um, in August uh, to rescue uh, people who were in a very desperate situation uh, trapped in in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, and then. And then they actually also themselves got into trouble. And it was, it's just this story about how they tried to get the Italian and Maltese authorities to help them. And they were basically ignored. Um, so it, it was about that. Eventually, um, the Italian authorities did send a boat over to rescue people who were, you know, like women and children who were really sick. And there were a few dead bodies on board too. So that was taken care of. But, you know, a lot of those um, refugees and the the crew on on the ship were in a very desperate, desperate situation for days and nobody did anything. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I guess there's like a lot of the article goes into a bit of, you know, the hypocrisy of leaders, uh, their claim to promote racial equality. Um, you know, they pretend to welcome refugees and but they at the same time they continue to support anti-immigration policies uh and you know, ignore humanitarian vessels that are in danger at sea. Um so yeah, it was a, a very a desperate situation. And yeah, I guess I just I I don't know if Jacob wants to have a bit of a chat about the Banksy boat or that particular project, but uh I hope I've given a good summary of it.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a that's a, a pretty good summary, I guess, I guess, of the situation. I think it's also I think it's also part of, a, I guess, a good kind of snapshot. I think of the refugee crisis in in Europe, because um, I mean, there's a lot. There's been a lot of example samples, I guess, of stories um, like this. In fact, some can be very depressing, um, like the the image of the of the drowned boy. Um, and there's also there's also the fact that, um, you know, despite the fact that that Europe is sort of seen as a as like the bastion of multiculturalism and progressiveness um you know it's clear that it's uh that the refugee policies that are enacted <laughs> by um even sort of more liberal governments um and I um, I acknowledge that there is also a growing kind of far right movement that is even um that is actually pushing against even the most liberal of the of these countries um has you know some of the most disproportionate impact on refugees. And I think, you know, this, um, this is a, the, I think the story is a, I think a boss, a positive kind of snapshot. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in contrast, cause I just remembered, um, I remember there's this very, I don't know, it, it's, it's sort of a bit comedic to sort of look at, back at it, but it's, um, I remember, I remember when, um, this far right figure, Lauren Southern, um, came to Australia and one of her main kind of things was, uh being the opposite of um having the opposite of humanitarian um uh, uh, boats, which was basically a political project of pushing turning back boats, uh through yeah, through yeah, basically turning back um it was a, a project of turning back boats um at, that was um that was lost in the Mediterranean Sea as like a big um you know, putting the middle finger out to, to refugee activists and um humanitarians.
4: Oh, I, I didn't know about
1: that. Yeah, it's a bit of a bizarre story. I'm not even sure if it actually amounted to anything other than the idea of it as it was espoused by the far right. But, yeah, that might have to do a bit of looking into that. Um, anyway, um, I might just go play, I guess, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio and, um, yeah, we might go on to, the, I guess, the next part of the program.
2: Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook. COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam, Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, you're listening to um, Green Left uh, Radio and um we have myself um Jacob and Chloe and for our program today um we're very happy um that we have for our first interview for the program um we have Raul Gichi um who is a long-time member of Migrenta Melbourne um and he's currently also the finance officer and executive committee mel- member of Migrenta Melbourne and also the chairperson of Migranta Melbourne um the West chapter now we have him on the line here today um, to talk a, a bit about uh I guess this new interne- um international sh- um, student support network that is going to be launching on September the twelfth. Um but I guess maybe to start off, maybe to get listeners a bit of a sense of the background. Um yeah, um Raul, I wanted to kind of hear, I guess, about what can you guess tell us about some of the kind of general issues that I guess both migrants and international students have kind of faced um, as a result, I guess, of this pandemic. Uh,
5: yes, good mo- good morning, everyone. With the uh, onset of the uh, COVID-19, most of the students, international students, uh, mm-hmm. were really much affected with this. They lost their uh, jobs, and and they need really support for that. And aside from those jobs that they really rely on for their day-to-day, uh, uh day-to-day sustenance, uh, they have problem with, uh, because they're continuing still the, the, uh, the school still continue. So they still have paying the tuition fees. And aside from that, we received some complaints about, about their, uh, providers who are, uh, sort of not understand the situations they're asking for to uh, sort of suspend their tuition fee or whatever things that because they are not going to school so they're not using the facility at the school so but uh, in uh, despite of those reasons still some of these providers are still uh, charging them with the fees although they asked for suspensions or to relieve, at least after the pandemic, but uh, there's a uh, uh, based on based on the uh, complaint to us uh, as we talk to them, there are more uh, sort of been uh, uh, you call it but you call it it's still being pressured by by these uh, providers to continue paying their paying their tuition fees. There are some of those that have already uh, been given some what uh, you may call it an harassment because the, some of them already left the school but uh, the school is still uh, charging them fees and then they're sending some uh, some letter from debt collectors and pressuring them to pay. So these are, these are only some of, the, some of the complaints from the students while for the other migrant workers which is uh, there are still migrant workers that also lost their jobs because of the pandemic and and these they are not part of the or they are not qualified for the government's uh, job seeker's program because most of them are casuals and and uh, some of the companies they prefer the regular employee to be on the job To us qualify for the job seekers program, but these other migrant workers, temporary workers, are not qualified to that. So they are really in this predicament that uh, they have nowhere to go. So luckily, there are some other, not just uh, migrant, but there are other groups of Filipinos and other nationalities that help provide some of these things. So with, with all these informations, with all the, all the problems that we, uh, encounter from, uh, from the students, we decided that it is not just the Filipino group or the Filipino international students, but all international students having the same, having the same problems. So we we, we decided that I think that it's preferable to have a support network for all the international students, so all of these problems and at least if we could have uh gather some support from other other organizations other uh, individuals, even politicians, and if we could get more support from them, we could have a bigger voice to at least. Uh, talk to uh, the politicians, or to have to at least uh, police, or or uh, have some relevant uh, submission, or create some relevant submissions to the government agencies to at least address some of these issues of the international students.
1: Hmm. Well, can you um? What can you t- tell us, I guess, I mean, just for listeners' information, um, can you, get, I guess, tell us a bit of background about to Melbourne and um, some of the work that you have done prior? And then maybe we can go into discussing a bit more, I guess, about the support network.
5: Um, to Melbourne is uh, part of the Migrantia Australia. Migrant Australia is throughout Australia, and we are a member of Migrantia Australia. Uh, Migrant Melbourne started in 2001, if I can remember, and our, we are, a uh, voluntary community organizations of Filipino and Filipino Australian migrant workers and students at promoting and upholding welfare, human rights and workers' rights. So from the start, uh, most of our, uh, most of the issues we handle are issues of contract workers or those four five seven we used to have four five seven visas which they have a contract for before I think it's four years and they signed contract from the Philippines and then those contract when they arrive here it's entirely different and and they have they have some other uh, uh abuses and that because of the situations that they have, and when they are being in Australia, they they have no one, no uh, no friends, and and no network to support them. And some of them uh, suffered some abuses from uh, their employer, or or been given that's a particular job that they are not. It's not part of their contract, and some of those have been uh, dismissed because of they could not understand why or because based on their contract they're supposed to do some particular work but they're given a different kind of work and and those are some of the problems we encounter and some uh received some bullying and then uh, been given other things or dismissed from work although their contract is supposed to be for 4 years or 2 years and then uh, some of those that, that uh, come to us for help, and those are those are major of uh, some of the major work that they have. So we try to navigate navigate what sort of situations or were uh, part of the government uh, organizations we have to go to 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 raise the issues, and there are things that. Uh, uh we have to help them even to try to work out how they're supposed to to uh, uh continue the the work or to to get the proper assistance from the government and and to claim what's its right to them there are other, there are other there are other things that uh they were uh some of these workers, uh, maybe several of those, they've been housed in one particular house and then been charged for X ex- uh, for very really high fees for rental. And it's, it's really, it's really sort of really unfair for them. And they could not do anything because they don't have, they don't know anyone here in Australia. So. It's yeah. It is one of those uh, things that uh, we're trying to we've been helping since then. And it's not just for the there are several several uh, several kinds of uh, situations. Uh, bullying is part of those. And then yeah, as I, uh, as I said, that based on their conduct, they be given like uh, different kind of work which is not part of the contract and then they're not paid properly so it is it is one of those things that uh i think until now is still happening hmm. well um chloe you had a question you want to ask
4: uh yeah uh thanks rahul that's um Yeah, it's very worrying to hear that migrant workers and international students are being, are losing their jobs. Uh, They have been since the beginning of this pandemic. Um, not to mention that even before the pandemic, they've always been in precarious work, uh, working in the gig economy and, um, they're more likely to be exploited by their, their employers. You were talking about confusion with the contracts, um, that they're given. Um, yeah, so the, I guess the, the migrantee, um, Melbourne, um, your organization, it's its good that there are organizations out there that are helping them. Um, but I guess I was wanting to just, you know, maybe ask, you know, we, we have been supporting campaigns like the wage subsidy for all, uh, no worker left behind. Uh, you know, the United Workers Union has, has really been getting, um, you know, behind international students and temporary visa workers, refugee workers. Uh, migrant workers centre has been fighting strongly for the rights of international students but that government support like you said has still not been extended and now it's been over six months um, that we've been in this pandemic I was just wondering you know how are the international students in your network how are they actually coping we've heard you know people lining up for food banks I was just wondering how the members of the community actually come together and support one another
5: yeah you mentioned about those campaign i think uh if you uh during the start of the pandemic if you notice i think we were also one of those really hard on the campaign about this we we write petitions we have on facebook every sort of campaign that we could uh think of and we uh, uh reach out with other organizations about those the uh, about those campaign support for international students. At the moment, uh, it's really it's really really hard for those international students, and we even uh, because we could not really support all of those. We could not reach out only the ones that uh, are closer to us, or meaning that are reached to us. That uh, we could give support like uh, like the food uh, food uh, food package that we have, but aside from that, uh, we try to because there are some food banks and other sort of things. The Red Cross, we've been trying them as well. Uh, we've been advising them: go to those places as well if you are qualified to to ask for help to those, uh, and then uh, all those we we. Publish it in our website on our Facebook and also, uh, every time we go to their places, we give them some, some flyers that the, you might be able to uh, tell them that you might be able to qualify for this to ask for packages. So all those sort of things we provided to them. So at least it is not, not just from us. They could get from other things if, uh, because we could not provide as many as we can to them only because we have to divide every resources, every donations that we have, we have to divide it separate for each off because in my area as well in uh, in the West, I have more than fifty students that I have to deliver. I have to deliver every weekend uh, food uh, food uh, food packages, so it is not just for the food packages that we are trying. We trying to reach them out that if they're really distressed or or depressed about call us and then talk to us. At least you have somebody to talk to. And you can uh you can air your your voices, you can air whatever is in your mind at least to relieve yourself from depression or whatever you have it, because it's really hard to if you just keep it to yourself. So it's one of those one of those things that we also uh, uh try to reach out to the students. That if you're really uh, down or just uh, we we provided our telephone numbers to them to reach out to us, ring us. And if you really if you're really down, we could refer you to because we have some members that are that are social workers that are professional in their areas that they could help in those other ways it is not just uh, emotionally it's part of 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 this so it's it is it is very hard it's sort of trying things and and then for some of the students uh, i am pertaining to to philippine students internet students some of them were able to go home because they could not really have, they, they, they lost their job and they could not find anything. And luckily some of them were able to go home to the Philippines, but the rest are still here. There are still a lot of people here that uh, we're trying to reach out and, and then help them as much as we can, whatever we can afford to help, not in, not just in food, but in any other levels of, of help with it comes to their uh, well-being as well. We're very concerned about that. And with the help in uh, with the problem in schools as, as are the subject, uh, our subject today about the support network. Uh, it is, uh, we're trying them, uh, there are some of those who is trying to, how they're going to complain, how they're going to raise their voices. And then they are, they are afraid or, or, afraid that uh, they might be, if they come out in public, that they might be singled out or maybe uh, harassed by the school, so they are afraid of that. How are they going to, to raise their concern to the school itself or to other authorities that uh, that uh, whatever the concerns should be looked after? So it's one of us that uh, one of our work is to guide them how to, if they want to complain to uh, to ombudsman, to ask what, whoever other organizations about their schools, about uh, the facilities, about the tuition fees or whatever things. It, we we were there to guide them how to do it how, how to how the process goes, as much as we learn on how as well on uh, to tackle those problems as well as much as we can. So with, with the support network, we are trying to reach out with any other agencies and other group of organizations, will uh, individuals, uh, related, uh, other organizations and even politicians. <laughs> if, and any individual who are really concerned about the situation of so international students, we would like them to support us in this hmm. endeavor.
1: Well, that's a, that's a good way in, to go into, I guess, The next kind of question is what can you can you tell us, I guess, a bit more in detail about, I guess, this support network um for international students um in terms of both what you're kind of intending to um to do in terms of um uh activities, but also what you're hoping, I guess, to politically achieve in terms of demands, because I just from reading the Facebook event, you're also Mm. noted that you are trying to make some political demands. On the government um, as well in terms of supporting international students and then also the details I guess of when it's launching following from that
5: oh yes uh, with yeah with all those with all those things that we heard from them so uh, it is uh, really necessary to create a sort of a network at least to advance their right and the welfare of the students support them in calling some policy reforms investigations and other abuses practices by the education providers. So we are really hoping that <clears throat> the network and with, with the network where we will, uh, hoping to do some, to conduct some, uh, forums with, uh, migrations law, about migrations law, capacity building and workshops, uh, sort of things, petition signing, fundraisings and other dialogues with various, uh, stakeholders. And we are trying, uh, we, are trying uh the aim our aim really uh towards uh, towards this is at least to build a stronger and a, a call for a better regulations and monitoring of private uh, education providers in order to prevent such abuses for international student mm. uh, that's it, uh, and
1: um, in terms of um, how can people support and get involved, I guess in this network, um, especially our listeners.
5: We uh, this coming uh, Saturday uh, is Saturday on the twelfth of September. We're launching this at uh, one30 p.m. Uh, we're launching this, and then we're calling on all those uh, all those. Uh, uh, that uh, organizations that uh, and other individuals to support us. They we have I think we have in the flyer our, our contact numbers, and and because towards that we will be doing some uh, petitions or other petition signings. So it is good to have if you have as many organization, individuals, and related groups. That are really concerned about, about the situations. If the more we have, the more powerful we have a big voice and to call on the politicians and other, and other government agencies to look at these situations for internal students to stop these abuses that we heard of and all these things that uh, really concern the welfare of international students. We are not just talking for Filipino students. We are talking all international students from different backgrounds, from different countries who are here in Australia.
4: Thanks, Rahul. It sounds like a, the support, so it's called the Support Network for International Students, and your launch is on this September the 12th at 1.30 p.m. It sounds like a great way to empower International students who are, are really struggling during this time. Thank you for mm. for telling us about it. Um, well,
5: thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I
1: just want to. Um, do you have any like final comments? I guess you'd like to make um, while we before we conclude this interview, Raoul.
5: I uh, yes, I'm calling for all uh, uh, all these uh, organizations, cost-oriented organizations, individuals who are really concerned about. Our uh, international students who are helping, actually in a way, bringing money to the economy of Australia. They are bringing, helping the economy, the the uh, and then uh, the work here in Australia, and to support the our network. And so, the bigger we are, and the stronger our voice will be. So I'm calling all these people to support our network and we want to rely as well as many as you can. And if you can come and support our our launching, it would be great.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Val. And just for listeners' information again, um, the launch of this um, International Student Support Network is going to be happening on 1.30pm, Saturday the 12th of September, so tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be airing, it will be, um, happening tomorrow, um, at 1.30 p.m. And you can also check, um, the Facebook of Migrant a Melbourne, um, to get more details on, on the page. Because I, um, because I imagine in this sort of COVID-19 time, uh, the event is going to be launched, um, online.
5: So, yeah. Yes, that would be on, lo- uh, live on, uh, Migrant Melbourne page, bo- page. So, yes.
4: Yeah. It's like a great event to get involved with.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, um, Rao, and um, thank you very much for being on our program. And um, yeah, all the best um, with this launch of your um, international support network.
5: Uh, Thank you as well for your uh, support.
4: Thank
2: you.
5: Thank you very much.
4: Okay.
1: Good morning. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, you're getting it's time for the activist calendar, and. Just to announce, I guess, what's coming up, um, this uh, on Friday, um, today, um, there's going to be a webinar, Protest, Repression and the Law at 1pm um, that has been, from my understanding, has been organised by the Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Um, so if you go on the Melbourne Activist Legal Support uh, Facebook page, you should be able to find the details to register and attend the event. At 7pm tonight, there's going to be a Friends of the Earth fundraiser, dial up the music, not the climate, which is, I from my understanding, an online kind of performance night. Um, And then the following, the next kind of events that are coming up is that on the following Wednesday, there's going to be an online forum, Victoria's Healthcare Disaster, Lessons from COVID-19, which is a discussion about how the pandemic um, has impacted Victoria and our Healthcare system. How is it that Victoria got to this point, and lessons that we can learn going forward? And this is a forum that has been organised by Social Science and Green Left. Um, and this forum can, um, the details of this forum can be found on the Green Left website, or going on the Green Left or Social Science Facebook pages. All right. Now the next, um, the last kind of event I kind of, um, and the, yeah, and last kind of event I kind of want to announce is. There's going to be a public forum, um, organized by the Melbourne Activist Legal, um, Melbourne Activist Legal Support. That's going to be quickly find by mails, Um, and it's going to be just quickly. It's going to be a, it's going to be a public forum that is happening on the 26th of September, on Saturday, the 26th of December from two to three o'clock. Upholding the Right to Protest During the Pandemic, which is this is an event hosted by Refugee Action Collective, Justice for Don David Dongay Campaign, and Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Uh, and it's happening on Saturday 26th of September from 2 to 3 p.m. 26th of September. And you can get the details to book your uh, ticket um, at uh, Upholding the Right to Protest During the Pandemic. Okay. Well, um, I think that's pretty much it in terms of the activist calendar. Um, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I just might play, I guess, a quick announcement and again go on to the next part of the program.
2: Black and Friday, Ford, Radic,
1: yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some Black and Deadly sound. Please share community radio 855
2: on the, the, people, the people. Friday, Robbie Ford, Radic, Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some Black and Deadly sound. Please share. community radio, 855 on the AM do you need to renew your subscription, make a donation
5: or pass on some information to a programmer?
2: We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 9419
5: Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member.
2: That's 03 9419 8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
1: listening to Green Left Radio. For the next part of the program, I'm going to play a pre-recorded interview um, with Rob Pine, who is a local councillor for Cairns. This was an interview that was produced for Green Left. Um, So hope you enjoy.
6: We're here today with uh, Rob Pine. So we're going to have a bit of a conversation with Rob, who is a local councillor up in Cairns, and he's also previously the state member for Cairns in the Queensland Parliament. What was dramatic about your term in the Queensland Parliament was that you resigned from the Labor Party, uh, withdrew from the Labor Party, and then you went on to champion policies such as um, the the abortion law reform, and at the parliamentary level, you're the one that raised that um, as an issue. And also you're quite notable for having uh, voted uh, a number of times, one, the only, the sole member of Parliament against the Adani coal mine. So those are probably issues you couldn't have taken up inside the Labor Party. Do you want to talk about you know, why it is that you left the Labor Party and um, and, and what that meant for for your role in, in the Parliament.
7: Yeah, I left the Labor Party over those issues and local government corruption and it was just uh, great to be able to speak up. I wanted to vote for what I was passionate about and what I believed in. So I became an independent member of Parliament and some women from the Cairns community came to see me about, about abortion law reform. So I had a bill drafted to decriminalise abortion in the state of Queensland. Now... That's a significant part because if you're a member of the Labor, Labor Party or the Liberal Party, you can't go and get a bill drafted. You can't table a bill in the parliament. Um, you have to refer it to the relevant minister or to the party organisation. So um, it's just a shame there aren't more independents and minor parties in the parliament who can do that work where uh, a member of the community can come to them and they can actually say, you've got a really good issue, I want to back you, I want to support you here, I'll draft a bill and I'll table it in the parliament or on, on your behalf because I think you need to have the capacity to do that to represent the people, in, in my view. But, um, yeah, so there certainly um, the nature of this issue ensured that after tabling the bill, it got a lot of um, attention and it was important important in moving it forward. And, um, of course, later on down the track, it reached a stage where um, it was coming to Parliament for a vote and it became apparent to me that um, a significant number of the Labor MPs were going to say, yes, we believe in the cause, But we think this is not the right bill. We don't. And, and governments do that all the time. They'll vote against an opposition bill and then put their own bill in the same terms. So, so that's, uh, governments want their legislation passed. They don't want anyone else's legislation passed. So it was pretty clear to me that, um, it wouldn't get passed. And the lucky thing for me was the Labor Party didn't want to spend a whole session debating it. And why they weren't supporting it, because that was going to upset some of their members and would create a lot of problems, not to mention cost them a sitting week. So they came to me, the um, Deputy Premier at the time, Jackie Trad, and the Attorney General, and said, look, we'll agree to embark on abortion law reform if we're re-elected, if you withdraw your bill. And I said, well, that's fine. You're saying that to me now. People say things to me all the time. Uh, They don't do them. Will you do a media interview? And they did a media interview where they publicly committed to referring the issue of um, abortion law reform to, to the Law Reform Commission and then actually introducing legislation to Parliament. So once they'd made that public uh, commitment, I was confident that uh, it would ensure they would keep honour that if they were re-elected, which they were.
6: I must admit, though, you're much more charitable on the Labor Party than I would be because I think they were quite cynical in the... In the in, well, even the fact that you had to leave the Labor Party in order to get the issue put up. I mean, like, this has been Labor Party policy for 20 years and they never acted on it. And, um, then when a, when a bill did become before the parliament, they didn't refute, they didn't, uh, support it. And then they risked at an election where it wasn't certain that they were going to win. Obviously, I think we're all glad the LNP weren't, uh, brought into government, but, um, they, they risked the potential of an election defeat, um, on, for that legislation. So I think, I, I personally think, I personally think, I mean, good on them for bringing, doing the right thing eventually, but they were dragged kicking and screaming in my view. I don't know if you have any comments on that.
7: Well, the, the only other point I would make, one that I probably should have raised, um, it would have been a conscience vote. And while a couple of L M P members um, would have crossed the floor and did cross the floor in the end would do, uh, when it, the legislation finally happened, um, at the time I was in Parliament, um, there were at least three Labour MPs who won a conscience vote uh, would have strongly spoken against um, decriminalising abortion, and that comes from their Catholic background and faith. So... Um, so that, that, that would have also been uh, embarrassing, I guess, to many of their members to see um, three of their parliamentary members speaking so strongly against what should be uh, a woman's right, you know, to do what she wants with her own body.
6: What comments would you make about it, Arnie?
7: Um, well, you know, I, I, I see um, one of the organisers, uh, Ben Pennings, I think his name is, uh, threatened with legislation, uh, with litigation recently. And um, I just think that sec- secondary boycotts type action they've taken where they've um, basically said to companies that um, enter into contact- contracts with Adani, well, if you do this, we're going to boycott your financial institution. We're going to boycott your organisation. I think that's been a very successful strategy. And um, it's got Scott Morrison worried. It's got Adani worried. So I, I think uh, that- that's good um, for those of us uh, who are activists that they've really shown some... Good uh, some good tactics there, and and also the support has come from around Australia as well, which has been really good to see. And um, every day coal is more on the nose. Uh, people can see what's happening. We know what happened last summer. We've got another summer of bushfires and natural disasters. Um, support to uh, stop mines like Adani will only grow. Um, we've just got to try and get the politicians to do the uh implement the will of the people, I guess.
6: The other issue you raised from the time in Parliament was the issue of local government corruption, uh, which is perhaps something that people outside of Queensland haven't followed very much, but is is actually quite an important issue here. Do you want to talk about that?
7: Yeah, well, um, in, the, in the previous parliamentary term, we had a Premier named Campbell Newman, and he, um, like, these Westminster princi- principles um, that, that our system's based on don't always apply in local government. So Campbell Newman changed it so that Um, your mayor, who's basically should be the sort of legislative branch of the council with the other councillors, was allowed to have executive power as well, and I think Campbell called it the strong mayor model, and it actually gave the mayor the power to instruct the CEO and council officers below the CEO. So that really um, allowed, um, well, put some senior council officers in a position where some mayors had asked them to do things that were illegal. And, uh, what do you do? Of course, um, some people want to keep their jobs, so they'll do that. And of course, in, in the case of a former Ipswich CEO, um, he made sure he got his chunk out of the, uh, illegal dealings as well. So, um, the, the, the state government has reversed that. Like, it was just frustrating for me because I'd been a local council. I came forward and pointed this out and said there was local government corruption. We need to make these reforms. And to just have the, um, Minister for Local Government at the time in the Palaszczuk government, just not even discuss it, um, yeah, I, I, it was just so frustrating. And, and of course, I end up leaving the party, all this corruption discovered and the reforms are finally made, you know, so just uh, it's very frustrating. And uh, at that time when I was in the parliamentary party, um, like I was there because I'm passionate about reform. And um, to see so many Labor uh, members of parliament who's seemingly only there to ingratiate themselves to ministers and try and score a portfolio like to become a minister is not a good in itself it's only what you do and and the or reforms you can make that that are a good for society and uh that there just didn't seem to be that you know that recognition there it was all about career advance but even jackie trad who you know she said to me once oh yes we must do some left things and i thought well, hey, Jackie, that's the whole reason that your faction is based to exist, to implement these progressive reforms. It's not just something you might get around to one day. And, uh, yeah, it's just uh, power, I guess, the human lust for power um, pushes the other important things to the side.
6: I mean, it's not just the human lust for power, I'd, I'd argue. There's also the whole big weight and power of the big corporate influence, like vested interests, people who make money out of policies that aren't in the interest of ordinary people yeah uh did you have any experience of that
7: well i was quite shocked actually because i expected the LNP to be very strong in their support of the fossil fuel industry but then of course the labor minister for natural resources gets up and says there's no greater support of the natural resources industry in the coal sector than the palaszczuk government and it's like wow you know it's uh sort of well i don't really want to be a part of that you know so that's uh that's why i left the labor party and um it's like that they feel this need to, uh, to commit to that sort of uh, existing economic, you know, natural resources, economic development, growth, and a and, and flavour of things. If we don't sort of show we're more hairy-chested than the LNP, we're not going to be taken seriously. It's like, it's ridiculous, you know. It's crazy.
6: There are some other issues which I think are um, having a big impact right at the moment. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 is is one. Um, in one sense Australia's been sort of very lucky, I think probably more luck than good management, um, when you compare to other countries like uh you know, Vietnam and Cuba, um and, and even say New Zealand that have taken a very clear social democratic approach to um to addressing this issue. Um nevertheless Australia has had good results up until the sort of recent outbreak again. But there's I guess there are issues about the the job keeper and job seeker. Do you have any comments about the whole, the whole Covid nineteen approach for the government?
7: Oh, I was interested to read recently um, with Job uh, JobKeeper how that's reinforced the bottom line of many of the big companies and the CEOs have collected enormous uh, bonuses, which is really off the back of taxpayer funding. So uh, it's funny we never talk about um, CEO bludgers. We're always happy to stigmatise people on welfare, but uh, when it's going to the big end of town, it, it just seems to quietly pass without getting any mention. And we're talking, you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, going to CEOs in, in bonuses. As a direct result of the government's policies. But um, in terms of COVID, I guess there's been pluses and negatives. The obvious uh, negative has been um, the social distancing requirement, which makes it hard to uh, organise mass protests and engage in civil disobedience, which is probably more needed now than ever. Um, So that's something that's been frustrating. And I'm I'm not a great lover of the Zoom meeting, so I found that personally frustrating. But on a positive note, I think we've got people questioning existing economic met- methodology, and, and i certainly feel um, the word socialism is getting uh, recognised and accepted more widely. Um, it used to be a no-no in politics, uh, going back to McCarthyism and that sort of time. But uh, Bernie Sanders has been um, part of the part of the real change there. And, and, of course, we're all disappointed, you know, the outcome with Bernie's campaign and, of course, Corbyn um, in the UK. But maybe they've changed the political dialogue. And certainly um, I think more and more people are feel, feeling confident now to stand on a, on a socialist agenda and, uh, and push that. And uh, I think that's really important.
6: Well, I think you've been uh, more and more prominent in your socialist views recently. Do you, to, do you want to explain why that is?
7: What I've been trying to do, is change that debate and sort of push a greater social media presence and uh, and try and dominate um, with explaining socialist values and why we need to head down the path of democratic socialism. I've been using the social media to do that. So um, I guess I've been more louder in trying to uh, even jealous, I guess, push, push and uh, propagandise um a socialist agenda because I've had the time to do it and I'll be consciously making the effort to do it.
6: It's pretty clear to me in Australian politics we need to have socialist change or else we're not going to survive the climate crisis. We're not going to survive the inequality crisis. Um, there isn't really a decent future for people, uh, in this country and in this planet if, unless we organise for socialist, for a socialist change. And, um, and I guess I see a socialist organisation as being a, an indispensable part of the process of, of winning that socialist change.
7: That's right. I'm also conscious there are many socialists that, that uh, aren't in socialist alliance. So I'm certainly, uh, at the moment, with the Queensland government election coming up, I'm supporting some progressive Green candidates uh, because I think we've actually got the chance of getting two or three of them into parliament. So it's important to form those wider alliances and, and networks as well. But I just find, um, you know, reading the, the policies of Socialist Alliance and, and talking to the members, that's the perfect fit for me. But um, I'm certainly um, committed to working with other left groups. I think it's been one of the failings of the left uh, that we, um, we we fight amongst ourselves when we should be focusing on uh There are always going to be areas of difference, but we, we need to focus on the areas where we are united and, and try to um, take on the common enemy more.
6: Yep, I certainly I couldn't agree more with you on that one. Um do you, so, I guess the other things that have happened, uh, recently, I mean, you've, you've been elected now onto the local, onto the Cairns local government. Um, do you want to talk about that process and some of the issues that you're wanting to raise there?
7: Um, yeah, I, um, I, I ran for council in my area where I grew up, Edmonton on the south side of Cairns. Um, it was not easy to get elected because, um, what happens in Queensland, especially in regional areas, um, you'll get a mayoral candidate who'll run a team. So we had a, um, a, Conservative team run that was quite successful. So the mayor, I think, ended up getting almost 70% of the vote. So that always flows on to their divisional candidates. So I was actually uh, fortunate to get over the line. So um, there's uh, a Conservative mayor, eight Conservative councillors, and myself as the only progressive on council. So um, it was good to have a win against the odds, but um, gee, it would have been good to uh, to get more supporters there. And that's that's a bit of what I'm trying to do uh, with my social media Advocacy and that sort of stuff is to create the environment where I can make that space for other young progressive people to come forward and, um, and sort of help mentor and, and assist them wherever I can. That's really important to me.
6: Is there anything else you wanted to, you wanted to say before we finish up?
7: Um, no, I'd just like to say that, you know, I've, I've also, um, I don't know if it's to pay more attention, but I've also got a positive feeling, uh, about social science over recent times. There seems to be a real hum about the place. And, um, and growing support, so um, I think it's important we support our own organisation. And hopefully, uh, I think it is important to grow the branches, and uh, and hopefully we can do that and have a real impact. And of course, it's not all about electoral politics; it's about um, campaigns and uh, and 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 bringing the community with us. But electoral politics is still important. So I think it would be great if uh, there were people on the ballot, because you know the last council election here in Cairns. A lot of people had two candidates to vote for, both of whom were conservative. So to, to not have anyone on the ballot paper who um, who shares your values uh, can be quite disillusioning and frustrating. So it'd be great if we could build our organisation to uh, at least offer an alternative and uh, in some cases work with other progressives to uh, defeat conservatives.
1: Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a recording of a talk by Rob Pine. Um, And now I'll just play a recording um, from a speech by Monica Hart, who is an emergency housing worker. This was um, a pre-recording from a forum, um, which was titled... Housing in the time of COVID nineteen, which was organised by Social Science, and I think it happened sometime in August. So yeah, hope you enjoy.
3: Um, Yeah, thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to be able to um, be here with everyone this afternoon. Um, And I guess just before I before I add sort of my contribution, just to endorse um, the comments from Mahia and um, and from Jenny. because I, I guess we all share those those very similar experiences, um, and I think I mean Mahir used the words that um, it shone a light on housing, and I think what when we think of COVID, it's um, and, and I guess we've been there right from the very beginning because working in, in a crisis environment, it very much felt like you know a war zone in some ways, and I think it made it very clear that housing is needs to be your first line of defence. Um, And what it has indicated is the number of people who don't have the basic ability even to to isolate and to protect themselves um, in in terms of COVID. And it highlights, I guess, the theme of today's talk is about human rights, the basic needs, the basic priority human need of shelter, the survival, the, the safety, the stability and sustainability to be in life. And... Just um I guess Jenny's talking about the range of clients that um, they see at the legal center. The the place where I work is um, it's we're actually a twenty-four hour crisis response. Um we still have our doors open. We've kept our and most of the housing services haven't. They've all turned to doing um, telephone work. Um we still do face to face I work out of St Kilda. Um and we do two roles. One, we work with, I guess, the most we're an accessible point for really the most vulnerable people in terms of um, basically metro Metro Melbourne, homeless people. And we also have a telephone system that connects over daytime with right across um, Victorian 1800 Government Line with all the housing services. And we also work as an after-hours crisis response um, over the whole of Victoria. So what that means in effect is that we're, in, you know, I think a unique position to see the impact, um, across the whole of the state. And it also means that I guess what we're, what we're exposed to is the different levels of homelessness that we have in our community, which were already, um, sorry, someone said they can't hear. Sorry, I'll lean forward. Um, which were already the housing, the, the, the level of homelessness, which was already a breaking point and a, and high burden before COVID. So what we've seen is just a whole blowout of that um, and an exposure of that. Um, and if we think about the, and I, I guess I categorise it and I don't like to label, I don't like to categorise, but it's it's sort of, I guess it places it some context around it. That what we have, and you know, the term rough sleepers' is, is often referred to. We've already have literally thousands of people in 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 in, in Melbourne who are homeless for a variety of reasons, and um, the, the factors that we see would, would see it into play would be um, mental health, disability, substance substance use. Um, We would see factors such as um, family violence, aging population, um, where we've got an increasing number of older people who fall into homelessness. Um, We would have an increasing number of trauma backgrounds, that is huge, the amount of abuse. When I sit down and talk to someone who's homeless, inevitably I will hear I will hear a background of childhood trauma, of sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect that is part and parcel for many people who are vulnerable um, and who have become it marginalised and and at the edge. Um, we have a system of domestic violence where unless people meet a very high edge criteria to be in a, in a women's refuge, they are quickly maybe accommodated a very short period of time and then shifted automatically into, into the housing and homelessness area. So an increasing number of women and children who by default become What we, what we consider to be newly homeless people who experience homelessness for the first time or, or are going through a transition of, of maybe having temporary accommodation that ends very quickly, motel accommodation and then being on the merry-go-round of back through the homelessness, um, system again. Um, I sort of don't want to leave out any groups, but newly arrived, newly arrived um, uh, refugees into Australia, another high group who have, who have no resource in, into housing and assistance and who inevitably are becoming uh, increasingly part of a community of, of rock sleepers. Um, in rural areas, massive, massive pockets, um, in rural areas. Um, all, and, it, and it's hard to pick out an area where you, where you don't find it. Um, regional, right across Chuka, Swan Swanhill, Mildura, go into Shepparton, go into Bendigo, go down to Warrnambool, go down to Portland, go right around that coast into Gippsland, you have just got pockets and pockets of areas with absolutely no accommodation. So what it means for people is that we deal, our service deals, we don't have that many workers, but we probably get 6,000 calls a month at least. Last weekend we took up $20,000 just on um, putting people into emergency hotels. You've also got a high level of, of um, family breakdown. That's probably increasing now with COVID. but a high level of, of, of youth who are homeless. So when you start to put that pocket, when you start to put that group together, it says it's extensive. It's huge. Okay. Um So the pathway for people is literally non-existent. You've got a pathway into crisis homelessness, it provides a motel response. We have got now, because of the money that's been thrown at it, we've got a large number of people being accommodated across the state, all in crisis motels. What was happening back in maybe June, July, that money was drying up, so people (laughs) who had been accommodated for the last two months of COVID, they were being exited. So we had it's like a constantina, people being into motels and they were out or back on back on the streets again or back into um, having to share with families, overcrowded conditions, families back into cars, so back into that scenario, and then COVID again, and then now back into a U. And so once those motels though, once they start to actually when restrictions ease again i don't know how they will be how what even though the government's prepared to put money into that area it's likely that motels will actually cease to have a market agenda and the the rates that we're getting for 90 dollars will want to go they'll put them back up to 150 200 dollars particularly in those um the motels where they can draw in that rate so i think you know what we're seeing is this um knee-jerk response um, but none of that of course is, is going to be sustainable even though there's money promise of money being injected um, into into the um, end of April um, so that's in relation to COVID but the that's on top of the other uh, uh, a pattern where there is actually very very little maneuverability for people most single people who become homeless and we've got to look at that whole background of, of um, against unemployment, the whole background of um, people being evicted from housing as well. Most will end up the only option for them is rooming houses. Rooming houses are notorious, um, horrendous conditions, they're violent, they're unsafe, and so people will elect to live on the street rather than in the rooming house and with due reason that they elect to do that. So the pathway for single people is non-existent. The pathway for anyone coming out of prison is non-existent. The pathway for anyone that faces eviction, they're well, not too many people who are on unemployment benefit can afford a rental. So, and a rooming house is probably two hundred and twenty to two hundred and thirty dollars a week out of a new start, which is somewhere around five hundred, was around five twenty to work with the COVID supplement. So we're actually talking about the, the, the zero option zero zero options out there so in addition now to what will occur with COVID the and we talked about rental stress there will be I would predict massive evictions. so we have already a large community a large community of homeless and then we can look at I don't know what figures we're talking about but we're looking at probably massive on top of that for Victoria. Pauline mentioned about the figure of 100,000 Um, that's the figure of people who are probably that are considered to be homeless Um, the waiting if if you take into effect the number of say the the, um, waitlist might have one person on it but that really means that it could be its family maybe three or four people so it's often quoted that you could um in terms of the um demand on public housing you could you could fill the mcg the number of people who are actually requiring housing. That was under the old figures that would have been there pre-COVID, um, but I would say you could probably double the NCJ with where we've projected where that, where that may be in the future. Um, just in terms of thinking through um, solutions, I guess one of the things of crisis accommodation has fallen off the government agenda over the last number of years. Public housing has been totally off the agenda, um, I take um, on board all um, the points that uh, he made um, about the, um, the endorsement, the need for, for public housing, and um, certainly uh, a push towards social housing, but even that has been um, if minimal in, in reality in terms of the numbers. So I certainly endorse all his points. The need for crisis accommodation um, to be clearly on the agenda. And the other issue is around um, the notion of affordable housing, and I think everything's been skewed. It's been skewed towards towards a market solution. Um, and interestingly, there's um, and I guess that brings to the role of the role of council. And I I think that there are some councils who've been far more actively involved in campaigning and putting forward strategies um, around housing. It has to be. It has to be. Um, an interest in an area for the whole three layers of government it's it's federal it's state and it's local government and there's been re- well there's recently a current inquiry to homelessness in Victoria a number of councils were um, putting submissions into that some of them are very very good submissions and they really I think get a you know really um, cut across the social and political causes um, of homelessness I must say the Morgan response was one of the weaker ones uh, that I read um, it had very little political analysis. It was whimsy. That's twelve um, minutes, Monica. Okay. I'm
4: having sorry. trouble hearing you. So, um, um, just some feedback. <laughs> so you
3: got another few. Sorry, months. I don't know what's doing that. Um,
4: yeah. That's um,
3: yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. So I I think that um, and if, if we look at some of the um, you know some of the stronger council um, reports or submissions that went into the Victorian government inquiry, they had a lot more political analysis of the issues around homelessness. Um, And I guess one of the um, consistent themes there from some of the Better Council submissions was around um, mandated um, affordability for housing um, in terms of new developments, and there were figures that were suggested there in the vicinity of 15 to 20% mandated affordable housing. Um, and I think it's 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 that that local governments are um, putting the time and energy into understanding their their communities and seeking to put or join I think the chorus of voices into what needs to be the responsibility of um, state and federal governments and in this case particularly um, state governments. I think um, I think though across the board, being, um, there's been a lack. Of, um a call around public housing per se um that's I think a very um it's a tragic area I think that people have just become so consumed by the the market notions and the, and, the, and the, um the shift to social to social housing only I don't ever discount social housing as being part of that agenda but not at the exclusion of public housing I think you know we need to have a very multi- approach. Um but I I guess my main point is that this is and has to be an issue, a strong issue for local government. Um and we need a lot more ways I think, to really I mean we haven't really looked at the, the um Moreland housing plan since two thousand and eighteen. So there's a real need for I think a strengthening of housing to be on the agenda um in the city of Moreland. Um because unless unless we get those local it's, it's those local initiatives I think which act as a pressure point, which act as a real pressure point on state government and consequently on, on federal government. Um that's probably one of my main points I'd like to leave with, but the, I guess just to reiterate that the depth of it as a social crisis, um in, in, in Victoria is it massive, is across the state. Absolutely across the
1: you're listening to Green Left, and that was a recording of a speech by Monica Hart, who was speaking at a forum titled um, Housing in, in the Time of COVID-19. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the program this week. Stay tuned afterwards for Beyond Zero Missions. And, um, yeah, that brings us to the end of the program, and hope you um, enjoyed. So have a great week.
2: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green
3: Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
1: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au/slash support or free call 1 800 634 206. Arise, you workers from their
0: stummers, arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt, now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the The commies commies are back. back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.